It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. He's a broadcaster. He's Drew Remenda. And you're listening to The Drew Remenda Show. All right, welcome to the second edition of The Ball Truth, featuring the great Ted Ramey and me, Drew Remenda. I like that title. It I'm works for us. Head. Although yeah. I will tell people right now I am wearing a, uh, a beanie or a toque because uh, when, when it's wintertime, I'm, I'm always wearing a beanie. Hey. Are you like that? I mean, I'm amazed you're not wearing one right now. <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. What's the temperature in in uh, California right now? Oh, in where where I am in in Walnut Creek, the East Bay, it is oh. uh, it's thirty nine degrees outside, so it's cold ish. I know I, you're probably. <laughs> it's actually uh, um, it's one degree communist. I mean Celsius here in uh, <laughs> it's zero here in uh, Saskatoon. So he, so I was going to be in the Bay Area. Actually, I would have been home by now, but I, last week, but I, I, um, I came down with a cold and yes, it was a cold. I went and got tested. Didn't have the vid or anything like that. That's good. Um, yeah. So, so I did the game from, uh, with Brody pre and post on, uh, NBC sports, California. And he asked me, he said, what's the temperature? And I says, minus 25 communist. I mean, Celsius. And he didn't catch it until somebody tweeted it back to him later. <laughs> and I said, I say that all the time. You've heard me on KMBR. I say it all the absolute yeah. time. But no, it's actually not a bad day today in Saskatoon. So, um, and I, I got to see you in January when I come back. So here's the question that is looming. And we've been talking about it, you know, in whispers. What's going to happen with the NHL and the Olympics? If there's it, a, a five-week quarantine of where, if you have to stay in China, nobody's going. You've got guys now that are Petrangelo, who was Alex Petrangelo from the Vegas Golden Knights, who was named you know, when they had to name the three guys on your team for sure. For Canada, it was McDavid, Crosby, Petrangelo. Petrangelo's going, mm, I don't know anymore. Robin Leonard's already said no, yeah. not going. More and more guys are starting to rethink it. Except Steven Stamkos. Steven Stamkos says, I'm going. But go back. Steven Stamkos and 2010, um, didn't play. In 2014, he got injured. In 2018, they didn't have NHL players at the Olympics, so he wants to go. <laughs> he wants to go. Well, but the that, question, go ahead. No, I was say, that's what uh, Tomas Hurdle, similar situation. 2014, yeah. he was injured. 2018, they didn't go. Collectively bargained for it, 22-26. And now he's looking at another situation where, he, and he alluded to it last week in practice, where it doesn't seem like it's in his best interest if the current potential five-week quarantine is a uh, is a possibility it's again go back to elliot freeman he was talking on uh, 32 thoughts which is his podcast with the great jeff merrick 
And he said he talked to an NHL general manager who is pro-Olympics. Yes, the guy should go. Yes, it's great for hockey. It builds the game. The bigger picture is it's great. Now, listen, the NHL owners don't want the guys to go. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them because, one, what other league is asked to shut down their season for three weeks plus and send your guys over there, risk of injury, risk of, well, and you don't get to use any of the great promotional things that could happen with your players doing wonderful things over there because the Olympics owns it. Yep. And they, it's a big risk and it's a, it's big hassle for the owners, but they did it and they did it and they did it, but now they're, they're not very high on it. They don't want to do it. But Gary Bettman um, negotiated in good faith for the bubble playoff and for the 56 game season and the salary deferment and, and escrow and all that. And what the players wanted was, to go to the Olympics, but an NHL general manager who's anonymous, who was pro Olympics said that if players go now, they're being selfish. What do you think of that? That's a good statement. A lot of those European guys, if you talk to them, they rank the Olympics as bigger than the Stanley cup. I know. And what that's, well, no, well, you and I are North American. So we're obviously gonna gonna go to the Stanley Cup being the bigger of the two, but is it selfish? I I don't know. I mean, this international competition it's the it's it's not selfish in its essence because you're representing your country. Is it selfish to your team? I, I mean, then that that's a much more complicated argument. To me, to me, I understand that thought because if I'm an owner and I'm paying a guy five million dollars to play hockey for my team, um. He owes me a little bit. He owes me his attendance. Mm-hmm. He owes me his his best performance he can give an effort every night. He owes me the fact that, um, yeah, I will do everything I can to be healthy and be ready and be on your team every single day. I will live like a pro and dedicate myself to my craft. And I don't know if taking if going to the Olympics dedicates yourself to your team. And you owe your teammates as well. The interesting thing for me is though, like I've really changed. I used to work at Hockey Canada. I worked for the Canadian, you know, that was when I was a full-time amateur team. <laughs> I, I, that was, you know, I thought that was the best. I, I was going to turn down the job. In fact, I did turn George Kingston down twice because I wanted to go to the Olympics. And it was 92 in Albertville. Yeah. Until Dave King, who was the coach of the Olympic team, called me and said, what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> if you don't go, if you don't go to San Jose, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going there. But I, I've changed. Like I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a big nationalist. I cheer for this, my team or my country because they're just from my country. I, I, I literally, I cheered for Marco Sturm in 2018 when they played Canada because I really like Marco Sturm, you know. But I, I get the sentiment, but I agree with you. It's really complicated when it comes to, especially European players, because they were, they were raised on the legend and lore especially russian players oh god so i I get that but i i don't see them going man i i don't see this happening no i i I don't either and it's unfortunate for a number of reasons because olympic hockey i mean you want to talk about drama the stuff we've seen over the past few olympics is just unbelievable i it's just the competition's fantastic it's you know it's getting you know an international stanley cup you know, yeah. it's, it's great. And I, I can't get enough of it. And I'm sure 
I mean, NBC is probably pulling their hair out because the ratings oh, yeah. for those games for the men's and women's are are huge. Now, for the women, they've got a great opportunity now because if there's not the NHL presence there, then they will have more of the spotlight, which will be yep. probably used to build up their league, which has recently been yep. rebranded. And there's an opportunity for them there as well that hopefully will be taken advantage of. Not that I don't think any of the other non-NHL players don't get the respect oh, that they it deserve. Fun. It was fun in 2018. It was fun to watch in 2018. Yeah, yeah I just, you know, if I'm NBC, I, I have to look at it from their perspective as well because they, oh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be, you think about it, NBC has already had one Olympics delayed. <laughs> 2020, 2020, the 2020 Olympics that happened in 2021 in Tokyo. Yeah, that was one thing that my brother kept on asking me. He said, why are they using that branding? This is very confusing. Because <laughs> they already had it done. Yeah. That's right. It costs money, Brandon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, though. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't I don't see them going in the, in the current situation. All right. I want to jump over to last night's game in, um, in a, a fan favorite of the San Jose Sharks, the great Joe Pavelski. Last night, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, Dallas Stars, um, Tanner Carroll gets dropped by Brett Conley. Plays coming, breakout coming around the boards, pucks around the boards. Conley just, if, if you were to ask somebody, what is interference in hockey? They would point to this play and go, that is interference. Mm -hmm. Conley just decks Carroll, who was coming around to the boards, looking back for the puck. The puck's not anywhere near him, and Conley drops him, knocks him out cold. Um, five minutes for interference, game misconduct, mm -hmm. going to have a meeting and he's going to get suspended for at least five games, at least. Now, Conley's not dirty. Conley's the most minutes Conley's ever had in a season in penalties is 40. He's not a dirty guy, but is a bonehead dumb play. I, I don't even know what he's thinking here. The stars come back. They score in the power play, um, a couple goals on that power play, if I remember correctly. And the big news is, number one, Carroll's okay. Ah, sorry. He's conscious, yeah. alert. He's obviously going to have a concussion, has a concussion, and he's going to, but he's going to be okay, it looks like. Joe Pavelski, after the game, when asked about it, moved to tears, sobbing about Tanner Carroll. And he, he said, he really was shaken up older. He said, I've been here before. And this is, of course, we know what he's talking about, the great moment from San Jose Sharks playoff history. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. it cost Joe Pavelski. Joe Pavelski, got the five, was injured. 2019, five, 2019, right? Five games or, or five-minute penalty to, to Vegas. And then the Sharks come back and win that game. Amazing. And Joe cheered up and said, my teammates rallied around me that night. When Carroll gets called on to play, he shows up and plays. You just say a prayer for a speedy recovery. And he, and he said that he was, and he talked a lot about Kira, which the guy just shows up, just, you know, does what he's told and, 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 and works his ass off. And he was, but it was really emotional. And I was kind of taken aback because Joe is usually, almost always, in total control. Mm -hmm. You know, he's always, he's very well, controlled, like I said. What did you think of that? And what did you think it says about Joe Pavelski? Well, I mean, I think that you, you do take into account for it that he has been in a similar situation 
I mean, not not a, the same type of play because it was a cross-checking that led to the five-minute major in that game seven. Um, but, you know, when you're down on the ice and there's blood coming out of your head and you have to be carried off by your teammates, uh, that stays with you. And I thought that he was in that situation, not, and I don't use this term in a negative, but he was the victim and he couldn't come out there and rally for his guys. This was an opportunity where he could come out there and, and be part of the rally, be part of the teammates to lift up his team that he was not able to be a part of in 2019 in that game seven. Um, so I think those emotions were weighing pretty heavily on him. There was a, a juxtaposition of having been on both sides of it. Now you go beyond that shows how much he cares about his teammates. And I think that's why, and I'll never forget this. Eric Carlson and Joe Pavelski were teammates for one year, 2018, 2019. And when Pavelski first came back to Dallas, we are in the you know, post-game area. This is before the pandemic. So everybody's meeting and greeting, doing all those things. And Pavs is talking to me and Scott. And he walks away a couple minutes later. And Carlson, who played with him for one year, comes flying out, looks around, looks at Scott. goes, Scotty, where'd he go? Where's Joe? Where's Joe? And he points down the hallway. And Carlson goes running down to catch him. They were teammates for one year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to, th- there was no greater impact to me to see, like, they cl- he clearly had an effect on him. And yeah. he was terrified of missing him before he got on the bus. And that's, <laughs> it was the only time I've ever seen Eric Carlson frantic, but he came out and his head's <laughs> yeah, exactly. moving, you know, where'd he go? Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. But the other thing that caught me was when he talked about his team rallying around him. You could, you could see, even though he was filled with emotion, how much that meant to him, that his team rallied around him at that time. And he wanted to make sure his, his new team, the Dallas Stars, did the same thing. Mm-hmm. What's Joe Pavelski, though? I mean, I, I don't know why I'm surprised or why, I mean, how much, like Joe, as you said, cares about his his teammates, cares about the people you work with. Joe was always the type of guy, the only thing that surpassed Joe and his attitude was his work ethic. You know, as Jay, Jay Woodcroft, former assistant coach now in Bakersfield with the AHL, used to say, Joe has championship habits. Like that's but he's also got a championship personality. Yeah. It just, it was, that was, but to me, that really struck me as holy mackerel. That's, that's something. The, the only and other so, time I've seen him show that much emotion was the epics or epics documentary they did around the stadium game. Yeah. And they caught his F bomb laden tirade between the second and third periods. That's the only other time I've seen him really get that, you know, and now we've seen both ends of the spectrum, the, the fiery, you know, that Joe Pavelski we don't get to see all the time. And then last yeah. night, clearly shaken, um, but, you know, relishing that role to be part of it and be able to step up for his guys. The championship habits thing, though, you and I have been able to see it in San Jose. Saad Yusuf with The Athletic, who covers the Stars, I had him on earlier this week, and he said people don't realize, he said they think about, you know, Pavs as being, you know, he gets the tip play. And he said he's the last guy to leave practice Working with D-Man, tip after tip after tip after tip. And he said, he was, he said he's maybe not the first guy out there, but he's always the last guy to leave. And it's after a remarkable amount of work on the tip play. The interesting thing is, and I, Pat's going to tell it better than I would, obviously, but his rookie year, Ronnie Wilson's the head coach. And you always do your exit meetings, right? Yeah. And that, this was told on Shark Bite years and years and years ago. I knew the story anyway. And Joe goes in and sits with Ronnie in his rookie year, and Ron says, 
Joe, you're my 13th forward. You're not very fast. You got a good shot. You're smart. You're a good athlete. You're not doing this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. I'm not quite sure what you do. And if you want to be a regular NHLer, I just said regular NHLer, you know, thing we're passes now. You got to do these things in order to get better. Ron wasn't wrong at the time. A lot of guys, most guys, when they get that kind of mirror thrown up to them, they don't like the mirror therapy. Mirror therapy is a bad thing for most players. Joe went, okay, and then went to work. Mm -hmm. Every single day after that, went to work. And I dare say one of the best players in the NHL during his prime. And I dare say one of the best U.S. born players of all time. I'm not going to argue. He did it through work, perfecting his craft, being responsible to himself and his team. I love the fact that he didn't run to his agent, didn't run to his family, didn't run to a teammate. He went, okay, thanks, Ron. And then made himself into a superstar, self-made superstar. So I don't know. I think when I look at Pavs, I think that that last night was striking in in um, how much, like you said, how much he cares for his team. All right, here's one for you. Sure. You ever seen a coach resign in midstream sure. before? <laughs> Sorry, repeat that. You ever seen a coach resign in midstream before? Uh, not Paul not Grace? before. Did you watch the press conference at all? I haven't seen it yet. I've just been wow. been hearing the uh, the reactions. So. First off, I love Paul Maurice. Okay. I love Paul Maurice. I think Paul Maurice is an outstanding coach. His, his best friend is, is Pete DeBoer. Um, here's his other connection to the San Jose Sharks. He's, he's, um, oh, who do you get fired from? Wherever you get fired from. I think it was, but anyway, he's on TSN, which is up here at the Sports Network here in Canada during the playoffs. And I'm watching, um, this was years and years and years ago. And I'm watching the panel and they, they go through their picks before the game. Well, who you got tonight? Who you got tonight? It was during the playoffs. And, and Paul Maurice said, well, my son, who at the time was quite young, um, I have to go with his favorite team. So I'm picking the San Jose Sharks. So when he came back with Winnipeg, um, first time he came into San Jose, I went and got an autographed jersey of the boys. And took it to him. Said, "Here's for the uh, only only person in your family's got any taste in hockey teams." And he laughed. He said, "Get out!" He said, "And his son now is a broadcaster uh, doing hockey." And yeah, so it's really cool. He's a, he's still. I don't know if his Sharks are still his favorite team, but I know he's still got a place in his heart for it. But Paul, Paul, um, I think this is so. I thought this was such a take your ego out of it huge humility and stark reality of I'm not doing the right things anymore. And, and to me, that was the ultimate form of being a coach and being a leader is, you know what guys, it's, it's not working what I'm saying anymore. It's, it's not working the energy I'm bringing anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not pushing the right buttons anymore. So the best thing for me and for us is to go in another direction. And you know what? I think it was, I, I think it was, 
yeah, it was, it was Kevin Constantine. We had that, you know, that Kevin comes in that third year, we, we had that big turnaround and make the playoffs. And, and we were talking after the season, just Kevin and I, and I just was complimenting him on what a hell of a job he did. I mean, he, he really through some really tough situations and rookie coach, he did an amazing job. And he said, you know, Drew, but you know what? Eventually my voice will fade. So what do you mean? He goes, they'll stop listening. Happens. He said, that's what, that's what happens in hockey. That's what happens with all sports Mm -hmm. is that your, your voice doesn't ring as loud anymore. He said, as soon as we lose a few games or something happens where what we're doing isn't working, my voice will start to fade. He said, it happened. It will happen to all of us. And, and, and I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. I thought about it. I thought about it. And then when I went to Kansas city and coached with Vasily, I can tell you the day I can tell you the game where I knew we weren't getting to the guys anymore. I absolutely hundred percent remember it. And I know where we were. I know exactly the situation where I didn't say it to Vasily at the time, but I walked out of that game, sat on the bus and went, okay, Kev, I get you. You know, it's a, it's a, and what people don't understand is when you're struggling as a coach, that's when you're coaching your ass off. Yeah. You know, that's when you are, you're doing everything. You're staying up, you're going over video back in the day. It was video, not computer set. You're going, you're winding, rewinding back and forth, back and forth. You're on the whiteboard. You're changing the lines all the time. You're thinking about, no, well, you're bringing guys in for meetings, but you know, in your heart, you're not connecting. And I, I, that's why when I looked at what Paul did, I thought, wow, that was impressive. He said the quote I read, and he either said I need. He literally said, I, and I might be misquoting. He said, "I either need to take my ego or my arrogance out of this, yeah. and think about what's best." And a, a change was needed. And again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was yeah. it was that matter of fact, which yeah. is like you alluded to. You never hear that from coaches, and yet it, it. But it, can a coach be wrong? Like sure. at what at what point if if Maurice had them playing well previously. And I think it's yeah. hard to argue with what we saw last year. Why does that cease to get through? At what point is that not also on the players as much as it's on the coach? Well, that's a great question. He did say that this is a good team and I'm a good coach. Mm-hmm. But if you allow me some arrogance here for a minute, I know what's best for this team. And after eight years, he's probably right. I know what wasn't working and what was working. And it, it was on the players, but what's my job as a coach? Get put guys in the position players. to win. Exactly. Get the most out of players, put them in the best position to succeed. And to me, I, I, we, I've had some discussion with people, well, he quit on them. I said, no, 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 he didn't quit on them. He didn't quit on them at all. He put them in a different, he gave them a different situation where they could succeed. They gave him, he gave him a different voice and talked to Jamie Thomas, who's their uh, color commentator on the radio. And he said, well, exactly what you just said. Well, now it switches. Now the onus is on the players. You know, David Lowry is, David Lowry is a good coach. Uh, one of the few guys in the National Hockey League to now coach his son in a game, in an NHL game. <laughs> I think it was the Patricks and then Bill Deneen and Gordy Deneen in Philadelphia way back when. And then now Davey, I can't find anybody else. But um, 
Dave is a very different voice than Paul. Like Dave is, Dave's like the way he played. He's no BS Blood. guy. Yeah, he's very, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's funny with coaches now. Coaches are, you know, it's, it's hard to be blunt with guys nowadays. You have to be, but it's a very delicate balance with players. See, it, it's interesting you bring that up because when I look at Bob Bugner, he is extremely blunt. But I also classify him as a player's coach. I mean, you see why the guys yeah. respond to him. And I, and I was actually wondering if, if it's because he had to not wallow in the minors, but he had to spend his time. He had to pay his dues. There's probably a part of Bugner that says coaches were BSing me when they should have been straight up. And I'm not going to do that to my players. And I feel like that's why the players like him. And it shows me he's not far removed when he was out there. I think Bob coaches players the way he wishes he was coached when he played you know um it's it's funny you know coaching now because players are different now it used to be when you know back a thousand years when i was assistant coach of the sharks and when i coached even in in university and you told guys what to do and that was it and you you, you go do what i tell you to do because i like my father you know because i freaking told you so yeah that's why can't do that now players want to know the why and you've got to get them to most players you've got to get them to change their game they have the skill they have the raw skill they have the talent and they all have the hockey iq some better than others but you have to get them to to play a certain way and and coaches talk about the right way to play and call it whatever you want whatever works within your system but i think you're right one thing that interests me about bob when i watch bob Bugner coach he there's a lot he he there's a lot going on on the bench. He is really active in feedback, mm -hmm. really active in feedback. Some coaches aren't. The other thing is, um, after games, like I said it the other night, I didn't think they were very good against, um, who was the other night? Vancouver. Seattle or Vancouver? Yeah. Vancouver. I didn't think they were good in either game. I didn't like them very much. I didn't like their game against Vancouver at all because I didn't think there was enough. I didn't think there was enough guys try to pull the rope. Bob came out after and was, I liked our energy. I liked the way we did this. I liked the way we did that. And he was really positive, really upbeat, but he realizes the team that he's got, you know, kick the crap out of the guys. Andrew Cogliano came out after and said, we got to be better. And I, and I like that because the players saying it, mm -hmm. you know, so what Bob tells us and what Bob tells the team is probably two different things, which is <laughs> no big deal, but which way it should be. But when I watch Bob coach, and I'm watching, you know, you look, you watch coaches now. It really is a balancing act. Okay, how much can I push these guys? But I, I looked at Paul Maurice and what he did, and I was I was so impressed because it was the ultimate check your ego at the door moment. You know, so um what did you think of the sharks the other night? Uh you know, I the last I, two games I haven't been. Well, this is one of the things that I go back to what you have told me oftentimes is that when you give players restrictions, you also give them freedom because you're saying, this is your assignment. This is your assignment and so forth. Yeah. They know what quadrant and what they have to do there. So forth. When I watch the sharks right now, I see a team that is so mindful of establishing their identity of a defense first team blocking shots, getting it away from the front of the net into the corners, chip and chase. There's so much thought on that, that it's detracting from their offensive game. Yeah. 
And it's, it's not, they will not be, and you can tell me if I'm being naive, but I don't think they'll find their offense until the identity they're trying to establish becomes subconscious because they're clearly thinking about it at all times. Analysis to paralysis. Yeah. You know, they, I think you're right. And listen, they, they do have to, they do have to make sure they're always playing. Well, every team does. Yeah. Play good team. Um, to me, there just wasn't, and I think this probably goes back to what you're talking about. There just wasn't enough juice. There just wasn't enough get up and go. There wasn't enough. Let's get after these urgency. Guys. Yeah. Urgency. Yeah. Um, Andrew called it in the game desperation. He said, we gotta, we gotta do more. And he said they needed more will to win. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, yeah. One thing that doesn't has impressed me though is the call-ups. The young call-ups since like when the COVID hit, yeah. those guys came up and played great. I thought I'm not even gonna pronounce it. Jordan played played well. <laughs> I'm not even pronouncing it. I'm not even trying. How many times did Randy say I didn't watch the, I was only on oh, the radio right. broadcast watching it in person? Oh my god, you should have heard it like a hundred times. He tried it easy for a hundred times. <laughs> You gotta change that name, but it's all there is to it. Um, but here's my other problem. Aiden Hill did not play well. No. And Navi's been working with him. You've getting Nabokov's been working with him on trying to stay big. That's that's third goal, the giveaway. And then and then came back out. When he goes to, to get in that shot on Besser, he gets his hands in tight. And you can watch for this when you. And Evgeny Nabokov has been working with this. He gets his hands in tight and then shrinks almost. Mm-hmm. Evgeny's working, get your hands out. Your hands out brings your shoulders back almost automatically. Bring yeah. your hands in your shoulders. Bring your hands up, out, and get them out. So they were working on that. But Aiden's, but again, he's 60 some games in into his NHL career. I mean, he's he's gonna, I think he's gonna grow, but that that's certainly um is an aspect that maybe you're, you're talking about that they're thinking so much about playing defensively when, when he's in the net right at the moment. So, yeah, but I mean, also the same time when they have the game against Seattle, they, yeah, what they, you know, they, they hadn't given up anything going into the third. It was a nothing, yeah. nothing game after if your goalie hasn't given up to anything after the first two periods, you have to win that game. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's to me is like, they, they got down two one, they get a goal and suddenly st- they start playing like crazy. And they get themselves back into it. They open up and they give up another goal. Yeah. And then, you know, quickly it's four, uh, four, two, and then five, two, and it's game over. And that's the urgency that I alluded to. I wonder why it's not showing up until later. And that's why I always think that, well, maybe they're so concentrated and concerned with playing that defensive first mentality. They're afraid to open it up and take risks and take chances. But then I circle back on myself and say, well, that's why they're keeping themselves in games. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. what the answer is. <laughs> yeah. Well, either do I. That's why we're both broadcasters, pal. Those who can't do teach and those who can't teach broadcast. Um, before we go, I read an article today by Greg Wyshynski, ESPN writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Greg. puck daddy from back the in the day. The for puck those daddy back in the day. Saying, what can we do to fix overtime in the national hockey? If you haven't watched overtime in the National Hockey League, the three-on-three we're talking about, obviously, um, it's become a game of possession, mm-hmm. where if you win the draw, it becomes turn back, slow it down, turn back, slow it down, turn back, slow it down. 
in 2015, when this came into play, the three on three, which I thought was a brilliant idea by, by Mr. Bettman and the group that decided this, that uh, one GM was asked about this three on three. And this GM said, don't worry, coaches will, coaches will have this dummy down in no time. <laughs> Which is absolutely true. And listen, you can't, with me, you can't deny my respect and admiration for coaches. But they screw things up all the time. You take the greatest parts of the game and they manage a way to absolutely crush it. And so 94 games so far have gone into overtime this year. Mm -hmm. 57 of the games have been decided on the three and three, the rest of the shooting. The highest amount was 2018, 2019, where 68% of the games were decided three on three. It has become a game of keep away. Yeah. Coaches are going to slow it down, keep away. Brian Burke, 2019, said coaches have ruined it. They've ruined it. We need to put a shot clock in. We need to do something. We put a shot clock in like the NBA where you have to try an offensive chance. And if you don't buy 22 seconds, 25 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever, then leave the puck and play defense. So um, when I look at overtime and I agree, I, I, I used to think the shootout was okay, but I don't. Oh, I, I cannot stand the shootout. I, it, it rubs me. The, there's no business deciding <laughs> anything, whether it's in soccer, whether it's in hockey, it doesn't have anything to do with the game. It's like a home run derby to decide baseball. Like what the See, my thought process earlier when people said that, I would say, well, wait a minute, it actually breaks the game down into its very essence, one shooter versus the goal. Yeah. But somebody came back with a really good argument. A friend of mine went, Yeah, but the essence of the game is a team game. So this this is why if it was me, I would say five minutes, five on five, play it extended. Or you want four minutes or do you want four no, on four? No, then, then go, then go four and four and then go three. Oh, and three. No, that's actually, okay. I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. But if okay. you, if nothing happens after five minutes of five on five tie, I, okay. you're, you're risking injury and what I don't have a problem with ties. I think that it's in, you know, Oh yeah. Playoffs, obviously you change it, but you know, I, I think you just go, go from there. You give it your chance, you minimize injury and you feel what is a valid finish to a game. And I used to be entirely against ties, but, you know, watching some of these, you know, 19 inning baseball games that destroy arms and guys, you know, end up, there was, there was an A's game a couple years back where they went 19 innings in the first month of their season. And a couple guys went long relief and their arms were never the same the whole year. And I was like, well, what was that worth? You know, like, I guess you could point back to that and say, well, that one win may have helped them get playoff seating, but it's like, I don't know. Like, wouldn't you rather have the pitcher be better I, I don't know. I always err on the side of player safety, which might be my uh, my weakness. But I would rather just go go for five minutes, five on five, like the game we just watched. And then if it's not decided, then, you know, maybe change it three for a win, one for a tie. Because the other thing is when no, it's looking no, like not, they're going to no, go to overtime. No, not doing that. It's but, a when two, it looks, but when it looks like win. it's going to overtime, the coaches start playing very, very conservatively, in my opinion, over the do. last three minutes. <laughs> Because coaches screw things up all the time. They well, overcoach all the I'm time. I'm going to let you say the <laughs> I will tell every coach in the world that I think they've screwed up overtime in, in three and three. 
And I, I get it. You want that extra point. You want to play conservative. And, and I get it because your job depends on wins and losses and points and getting the playoffs. I get it. I 100%. I don't mind the tie aspect. I used to think that philosophically a tie was not a result, but it is. I remember back in 93, 94, when we made the playoffs that first time, we had 16 ties. <laughs> 16 ties. Arthur Zerbe used to come over to the bench and say, my point, guys. <laughs> and, and then he just came back. But it was just great. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, to me, it's interesting. Like, they do. Coaches suck the joy out of everything. That's just, and this is again from a guy who loves coaches, who thinks coaches do a great job. And I'm, I'm, I, some of my best friends are coaches, <laughs> but they suck the Maybe joy. Maybe not after this. Not after that. Yeah. Wait till we get to the shot blocking debate one of these days. And I'll, when I get handed on, we'll, we'll argue about that. Um, Sergey Fedorov, the great, the great Russian player, one of the greatest of all time. He coaches in the KHL now. You know what he does or what he's done so far twice? He pulls his, he pulls his goalie. They, once they get possession, pulls his goalie. He goes four on three. Once they get it, and they, they, they won their last game. He did that. Why not? He said he loathes the shootout so much that <laughs> he'd rather do it this way. I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. So, but in the NHL, you get penalized for that. If you pull your goalie, they still do that. Don't they? Uh, I haven't seen it done, yeah. so I'm assuming that is the case. I yank my goal. I would just to get. Let's go. Let's just get going here. But anyway, yeah. I the three on three was a great experiment. But I, to me, I always go back to what decides the game. It's why I have a problem with replay when they go frame by frame. You're selling your officials out because the game is not played nor officiated frame by frame. I think about how hard the job of an official is in most sports, and how 99% of the time they get it pretty right. It's like you have to me it should be every sport one minute only look at the replay in full speed from different angles if you can't figure it out from that then you don't you, you go with what was called on the field because just like a shootout or three on three is not the game that was played reviewing things frame by frame is not how the game is played that has nothing to do with this what you're watching colin campbell who is not a fan of mine but i respect the man of the nhl when this all, when the whole video replay came in, I remember this quote. He told the GMs and the Board of Governors, et cetera, be careful what you wish for, boys. Be careful what you wish for when it comes to this. Yeah. And that's what has happened. It has gone frame by, they've tried to do as best they could, but the ripple effect is just, and the same thing with the ripple effect in, in overtime. Let's get possession and let's loop and loop and loop and slow it down. The game was supposed to have been three on three. It was supposed to be quick, supposed to be fast. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I believe it was, they were trying to emulate the Olympic hockey. Yes. Make it be wide open. Freaking fun. Yeah. Fun to watch, yeah. All right, buddy, why don't we leave it there? I hope uh, I hope you've uh, been entertained, everyone. We appreciate you all this time of being Sharks fans and listening to us on the Sharks Audio Network. And uh, hey, Merry Christmas, Ted. To Merry you Christmas. and your family. Um, you will uh, not experience real Christmas weather, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you pass for that. Everybody in uh, Sharks land, everybody Sharks fans, have a very Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll see you on uh, January when we're in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs>